You guys seem to particularly enjoy the worship today. Especially our God. You guys are really getting into that one. Um, we're going to come back to that in a minute and things that we said even in our songs this morning. I do want to start with a, just a quick review. This is from Ecclesiastes 7. And I'm not even going through the specific verses that are listed up there. These are kind of the points and how we end up in a place where we end up in schemes or New Testament passage, strongholds of thinking. And you realize that Solomon was seeing the same thing that pastoral counselors, psychologists, students of human nature see today. Except he said it even better than we do because he was inspired, number one, so that's a big advantage. Number two, he's smarter than us. So um, these are things that cripple us and stop us from really being the stewards or the agents of God that he created us to be. Number one, this is from Isaiah 45, 7, but it leads right into Solomon's first point, which starts at number two in Ecclesiastes 7. If we refuse to view life as a spiritual struggle, if we don't or won't put character first, Solomon starts the chapter saying a good name is worth more than fine ointment. If we won't put character first, we will avoid difficult emotions. We will chase positive feelings and distractions. That's the thing he spends the most amount of time on. Do you think we do this? Yes, we do this. We do this now probably more than ever because it's easy to just chase the quick emotion because of our social connectivity through the internet. We will avoid difficult emotions. We will chase positive feelings and distractions. Then we will struggle to take the long view. The end of the thing is better than the beginning. Choosing quick fixes and band-aids and putting off hard soul work. Does our country do that with our budget? Do households do this with their budget? And that's the easy stuff compared to the emotions we're talking about. We then idealize things too much, especially our past, which is what Solomon specifically focuses on, or our future. We looked at, for example, Jesus talking about anxiety in Matthew 6. Such idealizations cause us to struggle to accept the present as it really is and hear what God is trying to say to us right now with what is. For all the problems with the past or worries about the future, Scripture is actually pretty overwhelmingly dogmatic about the point that you need to get in the present moment, you need to accept what is and realize that it's here, so God's accepted it. So why aren't you? And how are you going to figure that out related to your walk with God? We struggle with that. And since we struggle with it, we start to become impulsive, addictive, compulsive, obsessive, over-righteous, over-wise, or both, which is really all of us. Just depends on what area of life. Only true reverence for God can help us come out from both of these things. And if we don't come out from then, we end up trapped in strongholds of thinking. Though God made us upright, we go searching after many schemes. And that becomes the way we look at the world. And if your eye was single, your whole body would be full of light. But if your eye is evil, even the light that's within you will be darkness. That's how you look at the world. In upcoming weeks, today, God's primary gift to you. Then we enter Advent season. God, self, and others. We also wind down the human being series. Clean spirits. That one's big. Authority. 
the incarnation and Christmas itself, restoration, new creation, and we wind down the human being series. There's a lot of heavy things to talk about, but if we're not willing to dig deep and look at how I look at the world, how I see things, what scripture would really call my conscience, and how addictive and obsessive and distorted it is, we're going to be in trouble. We're not going to be like that, like Michael the Archangel, that's what the statue of. We're not going to be good protectors of the things that God has entrusted to our care. That's what he's created us to do. That's embedded in God saying to Adam and Eve, guard, keep, protect. We're not going to protect ourselves. <laughs> so we're not going to protect the things entrusted to us. So we start today with thanksgiving and God's primary gift. What is God's primary gift to you? Think about it. What is God's primary gift to you? What's that? His spirit. What? What's that? I heard Phil. Christ. His love. Life. It's kind of a trick question because we immediately go to what is God's best gift to you. But there's, if there's no you, there's no gift to you. So what is his primary gift? What's his first gift to you? You. If there's no you, there's no wonderful parents to adore or blame, or both. There's no bad spouse to resent. <laughs> Jeez, Vesta. <laughs> Just throw Joe right under that bus. <laughs> There's nothing, for you to, <laughs> there's nothing for you to experience. What is God's primary gift to you? The way I've tried to say this before is, look, what had Adam done when he woke up in the garden? Nothing. God just gave Adam Adam, and then later gave him Eve and told him to protect and rule and care for everything that God had given. God's first gift to you, I'm not saying it's a, I mean, the most overwhelming display of his love is Christ on the cross, Calvary, that he would redeem you after you've so blown yourself up and him. We sang today, my conscience, a reminder of forgiveness that I need. Does your conscience really remind you that you need forgiveness? I need forgiveness. I distort things. We're all, to varying degrees, impulsive. We're all obsessive. We claim intellectual clarity. We might be more addicted to being right or obsessed with not being wrong, <laughs> and then claim that as clarity, while being a whirlwind of emotional chaos, affective disorders in the true counseling sense of the term, personality disorders, um, emotional chaos, anxieties, fears, anger, jealousy, insecurity. Then, to get some relief from our churning interstate, we blame anything and everything else for it. Then the pendulum swings the other way. We don't come out from both of these things. The pendulum swings the other way, and we go nuclear on ourselves, even suicidal and totally blame ourselves. All of this that I just described to you happens in a span of 10 seconds or less. As our minds just whirl, 
All of this is less than human. We are less than what God has designed us to be. We are fractured the foundation of our being. We are the distorted funhouse mirror. See, we're the mirror, we're not the boy. We're the mirror, distorting everything that hits us. And reflecting out from our distorted self what we suppose reality to be. And we'll say, well, Scripture's inspired. And it is, and we desperately need an inspired word. But tell me, with what lens do you ultimately look at Scripture? Yourself. You can't get truly outside yourself. We can get better at it, or worse at it. That sounds so radical as people try to make everything philosophical and give shallow, really, understandings of modernism or postmodernism or truth or all these different things that are highly philosophical. And then people aren't really dealing with this very simple truth that I distort things. I need forgiveness. I have distorted to my children what a father really should be. I have distorted to my wife what a husband should really be. I have distorted to you what a pastor ought to really be. I've done those things. We all have. We have to get better at talking about that and then figuring out how. Are we distorting it? Because there is no condemnation. We just treat each other like there is. If we know Christ, there's no condemnation. We've got to be better about talking about this stuff. We cannot truly know God until we know ourselves. Or, if you prefer... We cannot truly know ourselves until we have some accurate knowing of God. That's not a radical statement That's not, that I just said to you. Mystics, philosophers, saints throughout the ages have understood this. Many examples could be given because we're so fixated on the Reformation. I'm just going to quote John Calvin because that ought to be safe. <laughs> to all of you that are so determined to be right. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom. This is John Calvin. This is his opening to his magnum opus, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Okay? This is his opening statement. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. Augustine said it. Meister Eckhart said it, a Dominican thinker. Teresa of Avila. Many others have noted this. Peter Scazzaro talks about it a lot and being an emotionally healthy leader. He's a contemporary author. C.S. Lewis said the following. Everybody quotes Calvin and Lewis, not realizing how much they disagreed. <laughs> but they're both okay. And you know what? They are. And they're not. We all distort things. St. Louis said this, when you come to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. So that's reformed. And in fact, he shows much more of himself to some people than to others. But then here's the difference. Not because he has favorites but because it is impossible for him to show himself to a man whose whole mind and character are in the wrong condition. 
Just as sunlight, though it has no favorites, the sun just shines, cannot be reflected in a dusty mirror as clearly as in a clean one. You can put this another way by saying that while in other sciences, the instruments you use are things external to yourself, like a microscope or a telescope, the instrument through which you see God is your whole self. And if a man's self is not kept clean and bright, his glimpse of God will be blurred, like the moon seen through a dirty telescope. Lewis goes on to say, this is why horrible nations have horrible religions. How are you looking at things? If your eye is single. See, that's why we so need each other. Why we need the whole body of Christ. Now, this is hard to talk about, partly because it's hard for us to even frame it. But when Paul starts talking about a major issue in the early church, which is food that had previously been sacrificed to idols in a world full of idol worship, he starts touching on bigger things. Paul often does this. When he talks about whether you should get married or not, 1 Corinthians 7, he says, why don't you try to be content where you are? And contentment being the bigger issue. Okay? And we, don't, we often don't really look at the bigger principles that Paul is citing We get hung up on the specific issue. And you don't really understand the issue until you understand how it connects to something that gives you more guidance in life, just in general. When do you make better decisions? When you're content or when you're discontent? Discontent, biblically understood, which is an unhealthy state. When do you make better decisions? When you're healthy or when you're unhealthy? Yeah, we make better decisions when we're healthy. So we've got to integrate some stuff because we're fractured. All right? And one way to say it is to integrate theory and practice, but the way that makes it sound too philosophical, narrative. The story you tell is your theory. Then there's your experience. And we tell stories about our experience, and then it changes how we even interpret our own experience. We know God through the lens of our entire self, but our self is bound by strongholds of thinking. This is the conundrum we find ourselves in. Our eye is not single. But perhaps the most common stronghold of thinking is what we think we know. <laughs> this goes all the way back to Eden. Knowledge is huge. Not because knowledge is wrong. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's not like you should willfully choose ignorance over knowledge. Just understand that you're going to distort whatever comes into you unless you get emotionally, spiritually healthy. I see it again and again and again where people seek more knowledge because they think it'll bring them peace. It doesn't. Solomon told us this. If you go that way, it creates more sorrow and more grief. You must get peace. <laughs> and then you think more clearly. You must get shalom, well-being. Knowledge is huge. It goes back to the core of where we went astray. And Paul says it in this passage. Knowledge puffs us up. Again, the problem is not knowledge. It's what it does to us. But Paul talks about different kinds of knowledge here, what I'm calling theory or your narrative, and practice or your experience. 
Knowledge is huge, and in Scripture, the human conscience is really the human consciousness, your awareness. It's your personalized theory or worldview. That's your conscience. Does your personalized theory or worldview or, or, or your narrative include this, I need forgiveness? Because if it doesn't, then you have no ears to hear the gospel. And you're not going to get healthy. You're not going to start at the right place. You're not going to think clearly. What's one of the biggest things we need forgiveness for? Being unforgiving. <laughs> Do you see how we just get stuck? How can we be so unforgiving when we proclaim the gospel of forgiveness? How can we say our greatest need is to be forgiven and then not grant to people what their greatest need is to the degree that you have the power to do that? But here we have experience or practice and theory or narrative. From our experience, we all make theories. Everybody does this. Okay? So when you read 1 Corinthians 8, which Tony did a great job doing, but I'm going to trump that and paraphrase it. Because <laughs> you almost have to in this passage. 1 Corinthians 8.1, if you have your Bible in whatever form, you should probably look at it. Now concerning food offered idols, we know, we theorize. This is Paul's starting working theory, his narrative. This is important because it's a good one. We all possess knowledge. We all possess experience. Everybody has knowledge. But be careful when you take your experience and you're quick to form theories and think that your theory is going to explain everything in life. Be careful what you practice because you can get really good at the wrong thing. Consider how we interpret the Bible. Do not all of our systems, I don't care which one you're talking about, all your systematic theologies, don't all of them have those troublesome Bible passages that don't really fit? Do we not spend most of our time making them fit? <laughs> I don't care if it's Reformed, Arminian, um, typical evangelical Protestant white work at the gospel, black narrative gospel. It does, it's, it's human. We all have certain things that just don't really fit our experience and the theory we form. And then we try to make them fit. Be careful. Are you, not train are you really changing the truth? No. You are training yourself not to see the plank in your own eye. This is why we need each other. This is why we need diversity. That's why we need very different perspectives. This is what's so beautiful about this church. I know a lot of you pretty well. We are all over the place, like politically, <laughs> in our perspectives and things like that. Don't, don't you realize how good that is? That yet we, we actually get along, or you do a good job of faking it. <laughs> like we actually love each other and have tremendous unity. That only happens when everybody's like, you know what, I, I distort things. I do it. So I, that helps us be more patient with other people who do it. There are a lot of people who say they're patient, but if they're not patient, they're not patient. 
We have to integrate these things, and we need each other to do it. The Corinthians were proud in both their theory, how they saw things, and their experiences. Now concerning food offered idols, we theorize that all of us possess knowledge, Ex possess experience. Here's our working theory. Everybody's experienced stuff. And in that sense, everybody's experience has validity. So we start from a place of, I want to validate your experience. But don't think that you're looking at the world clearly. That's the balancing act. Your experience has validity. Your experience will distort how you look at the world. That's the challenge. That takes tremendous humility to maintain that. And this is a major problem in Corinth that Paul is dealing with, and I can't take all the time to run through all this. He's dealing with this all the way through 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 until he gets to the point of prophecy will cease. What you think you're so sure of in your theory that you think is revealed, it'll cease. Tongues, your undeniable experience that you had, it'll run its course. These are not the things that will help us really be the body of Christ. It's not knowledge or theory and, experience and your personal experience. It's being faithful, being hopeful, being loving. So you gotta, that's how you integrate these things. I have to be faithful, I have to be hopeful, I have to be loving. And if you're freaking out about something that's not an essential to the Christian faith, it's saying more about your distortion than it's saying about the rightness or wrongness of your position. And until we can admit that, we are not healthy. We are not seeing clearly. I don't care how smart you are. Because you don't have emotional intelligence to engage that. It's crippling your perspective. So, develop your theories, your narratives. We all do it. If you're philosophically oriented, the idea of theories is where we get the idea of forms. Go back to Plato and Aristotle and all that. Patterns. If you're part of the Great Courses communication course, where did Ben go? Ben Hellman. Oh, he's not there. Well, Tanya's here. <laughs> he calls it schema. Ways that you look at things. And we all form them because they help us interpret life and feel safe. They're not worthless. But here's Paul's starting theory, as I mentioned it. Everyone has experience. If you think you know everything, you're full of it. But if you think you know nothing, you're full of it. Everybody has experience. So, take your experience and develop your theories. But hold them loosely. That can be a beautiful thing. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. Okay, so fine, develop your theories and listen to other people and, and value their experience and their perspective. As you do that, note how theories or your narratives shape your conscience, your personalized worldview. The story that you tell about your experience is going to shape how you look at the rest of your life and therefore shape your future experiences. And that's scary. And we all do it. As I mentioned, in Scripture, the human conscience 
is really your awareness, how you look at things, your personalized theory or worldview, how you pull all your different perspectives together to create your form, your schema, your way of looking at things. And it's part of our humanity, and God uses it. And one of the big things that needs to come through that is my conscience bearing witness of forgiveness that I need. Things get through that are very good. But that's your personalized way of looking at life. And so every time you have a difficult conversation, and I've mentioned this the last couple weeks, Wednesday night, Faith Facts. Um, this is from a lady named Sheila Heen. So you're actually carrying three buckets into the conversation. The first bucket is, and this comes up in the communications course too, what happened? <laughs> That's the what happened bucket. And then we all immediately go, what should happen next? We lock into it. And why I'm right about that, and who's at fault, and I'm suspicious of, it, of your motives and your character if you don't see it the same way as me. We go right to it. If you don't see it the same way as me, I'm suspicious of your motives and your character. I've been in leadership long enough to see this happen to, happen to me again and again and again, where if people don't disagree with me, they go right to motive and character. I'm like, wow. Okay. Hey, I need forgiveness. I distort God to you, but... Um, that's, and that's all that first bucket. And right is right and wrong is wrong. That bucket is not bad. It's that we're not dealing with the other two. That's what makes it bad. The second one is the feelings bucket. Why well, you got to get all up in your feelings? Because you can't handle the first one if you don't process the second well. What am I feeling about all this? Do I feel threatened? Why do I feel threatened? And what am I going to do with all these feelings? Then you get the issues in life that keep you up at night. And that's that third bucket. If it keeps you up at night, you probably have some beliefs about yourself, your value, your worth, your identity, that for some reason are tied up in this because of your experiences and your theory. And that's important, but just understand that's your experience and your theory that doesn't make it true in the sense of consistent with God's character. You have to manage all three buckets well. I have to have a deep sense of personal security to process my emotions well. I have to process my emotions well to really get the plank out of my eye and see clearly. This is especially important for Christians because we get in arguments with each other like this is some existential crisis is going to end the church. The church isn't going to be ended. <laughs> Christ is going to build his church. Do you believe that? Well, that's right. Do you feel that? Do you, is your identity rooted in that statement? That Jesus is going to build his church. So I, I don't need to act like somehow I am saving the church. I do, it's important to be right. right. But it's important to make sure I'm feeling the right way about it and then I'm secure. And you have to manage all those well to have any hard conversation. So beware, idolizing your theories or your narrative. All of us, beware putting too much weight on your theory, your narrative, the story you're telling about what life is all about. A good working theory is everybody has experience. 
But if anyone imagines that he experientially knows something, we all do this. You don't know, I know. Don't tell me about concrete work. I know about concrete work, you don't know. I don't even know much about concrete work. I wasn't, I did it while I was in college 30 years ago, but I know. I know I was tiring. <laughs> it was really hard. We didn't have Bobcats jackhammer and curb and gutter. We picked up the old jackhammer and went through that eight. <laughs> you don't know. You know what all that is? Pride. I'm taking my experience. And I know. And that if people don't share my common experience, I'm dismissive of them. And if they challenge my interpretation, I go right to character and motive. So Paul's saying, look, we, here's our working theory. Everybody has experience, but if you think your experience means you know you have not experienced life the way you ought to experience life, you haven't really learned anything. Then he starts with another theory. As for food offered to idols, here's our Christian theory. An idol has no real existence. So let's all calm down. Are demons real? Yes. He mentions that in another passage. But here's our theory. There's only one real God. So all this is just a lot of fakery and lies. And yes, there's evil in it, but the idol is nothing. The Old Testament prophets said this. What is wrong with you people? You cut down a tree, you make this idol, you bow down and worship it, you take the other half of the wood, throw it in your fire. <laughs> okay, so this is what Paul's getting at. It's like, hey, everybody chill out. The problem is not really the idol. The problem is what's going on in you. And if you're freaking out about the idol, aren't you giving the idol too much reality? So everybody calm down. And he says, however, not all possess this experiential knowledge, verse 7. So I'm skipping around some of these verses because it's important to get this idea of my theory versus my experience. And then he goes on to say this. They don't have, some people don't have this experience that the idol is nothing. So they don't have a good theory that there's only one God. And why don't they have that experience or theory, even though they're believers? It says, because some, through former association with idols. See, that former association. That's huge. Former associations is, this is where we get, this is the word like ethos, where we get like ethic or ethical. Do you understand what this is saying? It's saying that these people, will, if you eat food sacrificed to idols, if you do something that triggers them because of their life experiences, they are going to react to you like you are doing something unethical, immoral. No wonder they're questioning your characters and their motives. But then Paul says, are you doing anything unethical or immoral? No. That's how they see it. So they react that way. Because you're not doing it in their customary way, their long accepted way, their respectable way. Now, the issue about food sacrificed to idols, let's not minimize that. What you have in the Corinthian church is Pharisaical Second Temple Jews who get saved 
and barely converted Corinthian pagans who get saved. This is, you think white black is tough? This is like out there. And both of them, for different reasons, have very, very strong reactions to anything that has any association with idolatry. Some of them are just very, very legalistic about it. Some of them have been sexually abused and traumatized. Do we deal with that in, the, in our churches? Do you think? And so you have this association, this ethos, this customary way of dealing with life in place. And Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the king of Second Temple Judaism. And he's coming in and he's like, yeah, you know, I had to work through that. <laughs> Let that go. Because it's actually okay. As long as you're not going to the temple and actually worshiping, that's inspired by demons. See, we moralize and theologize our customs and preferences because the emotional reaction it provokes in us so that we have such a strong reaction so we have to explain it to ourselves with a theory. If I'm feeling that way about it, it must be wrong. And then the Pharisee of Pharisees is coming in and saying, yes, it's not wrong. A theory is how we see things. Idolatry is literally worshiping a seen thing. We worship our theories, our way of looking at life, especially when we have a strong personal association or attachment or ethic, ethos tied to that thing. What is your idol? What do you turn to? Don't give me the right first bucket answer. Jesus, <laughs> what do you turn to to save you when life gets hard? Is it alcohol? Do you have an alcohol ethic? Is it pornography? That's how you get your escape? Is it work? Are you a workaholic? Is it your house? Is it your dog? Not my dog, Lucy's great. It's okay in that case. <laughs> no, is it your dog? Is it your theological system, your political party, your personalized worldview? What are you turning to to make sense of the world? Don't <laughs> let yourself feel that. Work through that and keep life. And this is the best thing about evangelical Christianity. We have a lot of problems, but this is the best thing about evangelical Christianity. You need an experiential, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Go walk with him. Keep life experiential, not theoretical. You ever wonder why the Bible is not written like a systematic theological book if systematic theology is supposed to be the key to salvation? And stop blaming things out here. Enoch walked with God in the days of the flood. You think the world's bad now? If you're not walking with God, it's because you're not walking with God. That's not condemnation. That's just, you got to hear that. <laughs> and you got to take ownership of that. And you got to fight for that. You got to keep it experiential, not get too hung up in your theories. As you do that, show some restraint. <laughs> Both the strong in conscience who don't have a problem eating that food and the weak in conscience who have these associations, they're making it a moral issue. I love Peter Tagg's quote, president of Lancaster Bible College Capital Seminary. I've referenced it before. 
But after an advisory council meeting, I pulled him aside and said, Dr. Tate, give me one sentence about leadership. Because I do that to people. When I feel like they're exceptional leaders, I grab them and ask them. Um, and he said, he gave me two, but I won't focus on the second one. He said, I can't make it one. Second one is irrelevant. I refuse to do it. No. Second one was good too. But the first one was, don't theologize your methodology. I was like, wow, that's pretty good. Show restraint. The strong consciences tend to run over the weak and tell them, get over yourself. I can tell you that, at least as far as my leadership of the church, I really try hard not to do that. I think Phil, Mark Bell, people on, Dave Morgan, people in leadership for a long time would say, Conrad, you're trying so hard not to run over anybody. <laughs> you're not. But... I'm trying to honor that scripture. I'm, I err. I distort. Um, but I tend to spend way amounts of time trying to say I'm not running over anybody. And that's the strong conscience is errors to run over people. The weak conscience, I just quoted Peter Tagg, tends to theologize their methodology. Don't think strong, good, weak, bad. Just think it is what it is. And so we have different strengths and different weaknesses different assets, different liabilities. The weak conscience is the people who theologize their methodology. And it's far more, their methodology is far more tied into their life experiences, their unresolved emotions, their hurts, their associations, than they want to admit to themselves. They're not good at that second and third bucket. And then they judge the strong. Paul talks to the strong in 1 Corinthians 8 about, hey, don't run over people. The church is bigger than that. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, why should you be judged by someone else's conscience? Especially when you realize how distorted the conscience is. They're not addictive. They're not impulsive. They don't run over people. They're obsessive. They're so terrified of being wrong. And the way that the strong person shows that they're trying to love people, love God, love people, is try to show restraint related to other people's forms. Not because then they'll be like, oh, thank you for being restrained. It's not about that. Trust me, they won't think that. <laughs> Sometimes they will. It's just recognizing you and dealing with yourself. So show restraint. If you have that sensitive conscience, don't impose that on other people. Get self-aware. If you're not aware of that within yourself, you're not seeing God clearly. You're, you're not, you don't have a single eye. You're not looking at things in a light-based way. Don't impose that on other people. He who thinks he knows, he who thinks he's experienced life, has not experienced life the way he ought to experience life. We all need to gain humility. 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 He who thinks he's experienced enough to develop a comprehensive theory and just run with it hasn't really experienced life the way he ought to experience life. What will you do when your system fails? Will you double down on it and blame everyone else? That's pride. Your response to that failure of your self-made security blanket, we're all Linus from Peanuts, carrying around our theories to comfort us, 
When that gets taken from you, how you react to that will say a lot about you. Can I give you a hint? All of our theories fail. They have to. We must admit that we cannot save ourselves, not just intellectually, emotionally, related to our identity and our self-concept. We can't do it. All of our systems, all that stuff you whip yourself up to do to convince yourself that you're not an imposter, that you're not a fraud, it all has to get torn down. And that's when you find out that grace is an amazing thing. There is comfort in coming to terms with how wrong we all are. Whereas we want to take comfort in how right we all are. And that's just dregs at the end. There's comfort in recognizing how wrong we all are. It is only then that yourself can see how clearly unconditional God's love is. We must lose our souls to find them. We are so proud, so presumptuous of our own rightness, so trapped by our own schemes, that I want to end with a quote from Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, article that Dave Matthews shared with me, Mr. Rogers, you know, Fred Rogers, um, he uh, found himself invited to a fundraiser for George H.W. Bush, way back when he was president. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood had no place for talking politics. <laughs> he just didn't get into that. But he went out of obligation to some friends. He actually had a great conversation with George H.W. Bush at this fundraiser. And they put him right up there on the main table. He had to give some little speech. And after he gave the speech, he vanished. He disappeared. And they were looking for him. And then his friends went out and found him. He was out on the tree outside. He got out of there as fast as he could. <laughs> he wasn't comfortable at all. He says, I wasn't about to participate in any fundraising or anything else, he told me. This is the guy who wrote the story. But at the same time, I don't want to be an accuser. Other people may be accusers if they want to. That may be their job. I really want to be an advocate for whatever I find that is healthy or good. I think people don't change very much when all they have is a finger pointed at them. I think the only way people change is in relation to somebody who loves them. Now, isn't that what Christ did? Note how you talk about and therefore think about life, people, challenges, Note how you talk about them with the person you feel the safest with. And talk to them that way. I'm not telling you don't let yourself talk this way. Because we need to work through it. We need to hear ourselves and how we process things. Note how you talk about this in your most unguarded moments. Because the voice of the accuser might be stronger in your conscience than you think. And it's not going to end well if you can't uproot that. And everybody else is going to be around you trying to like absorb that for you. And that's what we do for each other. And we should do that for each other. But aren't you glad that the accuser's voice is not God's voice? Think about how powerful that is in our culture wars today. Everybody's playing the accuser. Well, I know who the accuser is. I don't want his job because I don't want his wages. And I don't want his job because I know how I feel 
when in my distortion, maybe I'm distorted, I feel like people are accusing me. People tell me, Phil's told me, you handle that really well. Yeah, well, it sucks. <laughs> maybe I do. <laughs> Comparatively, it's not fun. I don't want to feel that. I don't want you to feel that. I know that's not God's heart towards us. He'll tell us hard things. But if you find yourself talking that way about other people, thinking that way about other people, thinking that way about people who see things differently than you, you might want to explore that. Because if we're not self-aware, we're not going to see God clearly. As Calvin said so well, it's really hard to tell which one level of awareness precedes the other. Even Calvin said that. And he's the ultimate God precedes. <laughs> so be thankful. Because all of this isn't about whether you're going to go to heaven or not. All this is about can we be more heavenly while we're on earth. Christ is the restoration of our being. God's primary gift to you is yourself. Celebrate it. And let's celebrate each other and God in our Thanksgiving meal. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Help us to celebrate you, ourselves and each other, and be thankful. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.